Hi, welcome back to The Horrors. Hi, I'm Elise. I'm Shay. And we are here with our final episode of this season's Cannibal Power Hour. And this movie has changed from what we thought it was going to be. And I don't know how I convinced Elise to do this. I truly don't either. (laughs) Um, This episode, or movie rather, is a doozy. And if you're the kind of person that gets a little bit wheezy listening to graphic detail, then just keep that in mind. Pause, take breaks where you need. Abandon the episode if you need to. Like, I wish maybe I could. No, I'm just kidding. Um, (laughs) Am I? I don't know. The truth is coming out. But I think we'll do our best to avoid graphic details. I think we usually do a pretty good job doing that. But just keep in mind that this is, again, Cannibal Power Hour. And this is definitely the most cannibal heavy film we simply have this year. That maybe we've ever done. I think so. It's pretty relentless. It's not a feel-good movie. There's no winners. No, no winners. But next week, there will be some nice, happy, jolly winners. Yeah, we're taking a little bit of a mood break from all of the (laughs) consumption. We're literally covering a PG-13 film. (laughs) But this week, we're talking about The Green Inferno from 2013. Mm -hmm. And 2013 it is. It is very 2013. I would say even 2009. Yeah, I agree. A hundred percent. The dialogue, it's... Full Jennifer's body energy. Full. And it's cringy and it's forced, but it's really nice. I almost wish that this dialogue was like in the middle of the film or even at the end to give me some comedic relief, but it's unfortunately mostly in the beginning of the movie. So you kind of think you're getting into something that's a little bit more accessible, lighthearted. It's not that way. So don't be fooled. And especially because it's put in a movie that saddles with a lot of actually important social issues when it comes to the rights of Native peoples, when it comes to trigger warning, we're going to be talking about female genital mutilation or FGM. There's a lot of weird pockets of serious social activism in this movie that is settled in an Eli Roth film, which we have not covered an Eli Roth film. I am a fan of Eli Roth. He's responsible for a lot of gory shit, and this movie is not an exception. But we'll start with the ladies and work our way up. So our main lady's name is Justine. She is played by Lorenza Izzo. She is a Chilean actress known for movies like Aftershock, Knock Knock, and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And fun fact, she was married to director Eli Roth for five years. Cute! They found love in a hopeless place. (laughs) I'm pretty sure they met on the set of this movie. Oh, wow. We have Casey, who is played by Sky Ferreira. She is a singer-songwriter, model, and actress who has supported acts like Miley Cyrus and Vampire Weekend. Vampire Weekend! Horchata! I love that song. (laughs) (laughs) I'm pretty sure she's on a song with Eminem, too, that's, like, really up there. Mm, That sounds familiar. We have Amy, who is played by Kirby Bliss Blanton. She is in Project X and The Young and the Reckless. We have Samantha, who is played by Magda Apanowicz, who is known for Kyle XY, and she's also in a lot of sci-fi and Lifetime TV films. And then we have Kara, who is played by Ignacia Alamond, who is also known for Aftershock and Knock Knock. So a lot of crossover with some of these movies. Going into some pre-plot trivia, like I said, this movie is directed by Eli Roth. He is known for Cabin Fever, which is upcoming. I'm super fucking excited. The Hostel franchise. Knock Knock, Aftershock, The Last Exorcism franchise, the upcoming Thanksgiving, which is a Thanksgiving slasher, which maybe we'll have on the horizon come November. I love that. Give me a pilgrim. Let's go. 
And then he also does a series, Eli Roth's History of Horror, which is a series that brings together legends of the horror genre to talk about horror tropes, decades, movies. It's a really interesting educational series, which I love a lot. So Eli Roth made Green Inferno as an homage to one of the most notorious Italian cannibalism movies, the widely banned 1980 film Cannibal Holocaust. Now that movie includes real-life violence towards animals, real-life violence towards the actors. That movie is infamous for a lot of reasons, which is maybe why we won't cover it, but this movie is an homage to that. Eli Roth would only audition actors who agreed to be vaccinated for yellow fever and be willing to film in the deep Amazonian jungle with no bathrooms, surrounded by tarantulas, no, no, no. snakes, and poisonous frogs that could kill you on contact. After filming was completed, the cast and crew were treated for parasites. Scorching temperatures reached to about 110 degrees while filming, which caused a Peruvian camera crew to quit on their first day. While the whole cast suffered from bug bites, actress Kirby Bliss Blanton had to be hospitalized, and Lorenza Izzo, who plays Justine, nearly drowned while filming, and some of that footage was kept in the film. This is awful. (laughs) So awful. So this is on Native people's involvement in the movie, because a lot of what this movie depicts is a Peruvian tribe who partakes in cannibalism, and we have some college students that are victims to that cannibalism. So obviously there's things to be said about what this movie does in terms of representation, perpetuating stereotypes, all of these types of things. So this info comes from an article, Green Inferno, Real Amazon Tribe Casted as Savage Cannibals, quote unquote, in the film. So nearly every person besides the American crew you see in the movie is an actual member of a tribe that Roth discovered in the Amazon. While scouting a remote part of the treacherous Hualaga River, Roth saw a grass hut on the bank that looked exactly like the village he had pictured while writing The Green Inferno. As they pulled their boat to shore, a few people cautiously came out of their houses to greet them. A remote, self-sustaining farm community with no electricity or running water, the Kayaneuku has little contact with the outside world beyond the occasional supply boat. This is quoting Eli Roth, We went into the Amazon deeper than anyone else has ever shot a movie before, he told Empire. I went so far up the river, we went to a village where they had no electricity, running water, and they never before had seen a movie or television. We had to explain to them conceptually what a movie was, and we brought a television and generator, and we showed them Cannibal Holocaust. They thought it was the funniest thing they had ever seen, but we had to know whether or not they would be down to let us film in their village. Oh my gosh, he showed them that movie? Yeah, and I guess they took it as a, oh my gosh, this is such a ridiculous depiction. This is like a comedy to us, I guess. Does Cannibal Holocaust also feature like a tribal element? Yes. Okay, I see. Okay. Wow. So they were like, haha, this is crazy. Yeah, let's do this. Mm -hmm. So Roth hired members of the tribe who wanted to participate both to act and work on the crew. They were reportedly compensated for a year's salary for only three weeks of work, which is great. Roth paid for every hut in the village to have roofs put on their homes at the desire of the tribe. And after the release of the film, Roth partnered with organizations Amazon Watch and Manga Bay to fundraise for rainforest conservation and journalism depicting the threats facing indigenous populations. He wrote, Horror films have always provoked discussion by pointing out a social injustice in the world, and I made the Green Inferno to spark discussion and bring awareness to the devastation these tribes face at the hands of corporations. 
While my film is a work of fiction, sadly what is going on the Amazon is all too real, and after we screened the film for Manga Bay, we all agreed we could use the film's publicity to help connect fans with them and support the incredible work they're doing to help the rainforest and protect the people who live there peacefully. I appreciate the good intentions. Exactly. And while I think Eli Roth maybe fumbled some responsible representation, it's also the conversation of when has a horror movie been a responsible representation of any group of people? I mean, we just talked about this with Silence of the Lambs, even going back to Sleepaway Camp of it's never the intention, it's the impact. What are people's thoughts of tribes or indigenous populations, native peoples, and how is this movie maybe feeding into a preconceived notion of what to expect from folks that live away from a first world society? But when we go into some of the post-plot discussion, I think Eli Roth does a lot to frame why he framed the movie that way that he did, and I think it's obviously going to cause some interesting discussion. So... Let's get into it. Yes, let's do it. So we start with an opening shot where we see a tribesman in Peru, which we find out later, walking through a rainforest with a child from the same tribe. They're doing their thing when all of a sudden they hear a loud rumbling noise. They look off to the side and see that a bulldozer is plowing its way through the forest, which is setting the scene for some activism work that we're going to see some college kids attempt to do, quote unquote, helping conserve the rainforest for this tribe. So we are cut to a dorm room. Our main girl, Justine, wakes up and looks out of her window to see activists on the quad participating in a hunger strike. Her roommate, Casey, isn't as supportive. She says, I hope they all starve to death. (laughs) But Justine is very quick to join them in their cause, even though she's not really part of the activist group quite yet. So it's really showing that Justine's willing to jump on the things around her, kind of interested in seeing what's going on, is very eager to find community in those types of spaces. Meanwhile, Casey hates activists and social causes and is calling out that Justine is kind of like a hop-on activist. Yeah, and that is interesting too, like thinking about Justine's decision to quickly join this activist group while we're also seeing her as a young woman in college. Like this is a time in many people's lives where they are looking for, like you said, community or sense of belonging. So it seems like even though she's choosing to join this activist group, she still has very selfish motivations for doing so. Maybe it's not necessarily about the cause, it's more so about a group that she can find herself a part of. Or it's about Mr. Handsome activist Alejandro. Oh, that's right, Alejandro. Who she's very interested in. Mm-hmm. And he's a cutie. Is he? Well. College cutie. A college cutie. Well, he kind of looks a little bit like Josh Groban. He does. Doesn't he? Yeah. And I like Josh Groban. <laughs> So later, the two sit through a lecture on cruel traditions, quote, placed on women in various tribes. And this is something that horrifies Justine. The topic of conversation is mostly about female genital mutilation. And she speaks up in class and says that her dad works for the UN or United Nations, and he might be able to stop it. But obviously, her attempt at telling her professor this news is futile. This is something that, you know, what is Justine and her UN dad going to do about this? This tradition that's carried out in various places around the world. So she ends up sitting back down feeling pretty defeated. Justine and her roommate Casey are approached after class by an activist who was sent by Alejandro to recruit her. And now Justine's interested, like, oh my gosh, this activist hottie is into me. Later, Justine meets with her dad for a fancy lunch. He, through conversation, brings up a necklace that Justine isn't wearing, 
Apparently, it's a family heirloom made from her grandmother's silver and mentions that Justine is a former flute player. She should be wearing this necklace. And then (laughs) I love this part. This might have been my favorite part of the whole movie. Obviously, like dad and daughter having this very intent conversation, this family heirloom, and all of a sudden the camera angle changes and we see that Casey, the roommate, was there too the whole time just sitting with her arms crossed, like totally uninterested. Doesn't she like ask the dad if he's going to eat his potatoes or something? Yeah, I, wrote, <laughs> I literally wrote Casey jump scare. Like it's really funny. <laughs> but anyway, that ends that scene. Just gives us a little information about Justine's past. And it also contextualizes the idea because he even says a line like, unless there was oil involved, then we'd solve FGM tomorrow. Mm. Like that this issue isn't as like cut and dry. It's like, can't you do anything about this dad? Like you're a lawyer. And he's kind of like, this is a worldwide problem. Mm-hmm. Like I can't solve that because I work for the UN. But it's showing her naivety. And especially that they're talking about this issue in this fancy ass hotel bar is like really creating that dichotomy of, oh, I can't just like pay my way out of this or I can't just throw money at this and this problem will disappear. Like it's showing how naive she is. So later, Justine attends that activist group meeting and Alejandro talks to the group about this cause that he's really passionate for concerning this tribe in Peru. A petrol company wants to drill the land for oil and destroy the area that the tribe lives on. Yeah, Justine asks what their plan is. What are you going to do, march in and starve yourselves? And Alejandro swiftly kicks her out of the meeting, being like, you're not a believer. You don't believe we can make change. (laughs) You're not a believer. (laughs) (laughs) Baby, 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 no. Baby, 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 oh. Thought you'd always be mine. Mine. Anyway. Get out of (laughs) here. Later, Justine finds Alejandro and apologizes for her behavior. Alejandro talks about how what they really need is media attention, the threat of embarrassment, and that's what gets people to change. Justine says that she's ready to prove herself, but it's also showing that Alejandro is working an angle that she knows who her father is. So knowing that she might have influence, like we know that, but Justine doesn't necessarily know that quite yet. So later, Alejandro maps out the path of destruction of the petrol company. They have a contact that will allow them to stream their protest and the attempted destruction, and that media attention should get the petrol company to stop bulldozing the land. Justine tells her roommate Casey about everything. Casey warns her that it's going to get ugly. She's like, I think you're 100% wrong. And she's like, well, I think you're 100% whore. (laughs) The best line of dialogue. It's the best line. We, we both had to pause the movie and look at each other. And we just were like, like mm-hmm. uh-huh. We simply need to start saying this to each other. We simply, <laughs> this simply is the way we greet each other now. And I just wrote, Casey is not going and I'm so happy. Like, I am the person who's the first to be like, I'm not going to go. Like, you go do that. I'm not going to go. I'll see you when you get home. Because I thought Casey was going to get killed in this forest. And I'm like, mm-hmm. I'm just glad Casey never got on the plane. I love that she has an instinct and sticks to it because so often in horror films, we see characters have gut feelings that they should or should not do something, defy that instinct, and then totally get killed off. So Casey, she is sitting home and comfortable this whole time, and I'm so happy for her. Casey is fully (laughs) anti-activism, and while I don't think that's helpful, I can respect that she sticks her course. Mm -hmm. Now we are introduced to Carlos as Justine is now on a plane 
They get off of one plane and load it onto another. They are now in Peru. I wrote, everyone looks so happy to get off another plane just to get onto another one. I'm never happy to get onto a plane, <laughs> especially if I have to do like two in a row. Like, Yeah, layovers are not fun. And especially because they're getting on a tiny ass fucking plane. It's so small. It's a small ass plane. There are minivans that are larger than this plane that they get on. This is where I wrote useless scarf appearance. You also wrote something about Yes, I did. I said to shave before recording. I was like, I just wrote the word scarf. What does that mean? I guess this is what it means. That someone's wearing a scarf. Because if you're an activist, you just simply must wear a scarf. Oh, and also it's 2013. Didn't you know? Have I gone on my scarf rant before? The last scarf rant we had, I think, was when a stranger calls with the Seuss scarf. And of course, so then I probably talked about how I thought scarves with everything was the peak of fashion. And I was so happy and content to stay there for the rest of my life. Oh, of course. I still have all my scarves. All you have to do is wear a solid color tee and throw a scarf on that shit. And that shit's elevated. Look, if there's one thing I've learned, fashion is a cycle. It will be back and I will be ready with my scarves. It's why I've never abandoned the skinny jeans. (laughs) (laughs) Or the beanies. Keep all your beanies. They're going to be back. That nef, that aperture, keep it. <laughs> keep it. So they take some rickshaws. Justine is taking all of the photos. We can already tell that she is using this as a tourism experience and not necessarily an activism experience. They arrive at a nice-ass restaurant to talk about yellow fever, which, again, this dichotomy of having these very serious moral conversations in these elevated spaces is very obvious. This is where we're introduced to Lars, a.k.a. Junie, from Spy Kids as an adult. Megan Trainer's husband, <laughs> father of her children. <laughs> Dear future husband. Yeah, this Lars. This is future husband. It's Lars. <gasps> yeah. That's a great song. That's a it? great song. Exactly. Dear future husband, it's Daryl Sabra. It's Junie from Spy Kids. <laughs> it's Lars. This would probably be a good time to introduce the other people on the trip. In addition to Lars and Alejandro and, of course, Justine, we also have Jonah Alejandro's girlfriend, Kara, Amy, Samantha. Amy and Samantha are girlfriends. And Daniel. They, as a group, talk about how there are militias there. There's significant risk. Alejandro pulls some. Well, if you want an out, here it is. Take it now. But of course, no one takes it because everybody respects this activism man too much. So they instead get onto boats hurriedly and take off on the river. They stop for a potty break. Lars and Justine go into the woods to pee. We see Lars's full shaft and the tarantula <laughs> almost bites his dick off. I couldn't watch this. I knew this part was coming. This podcast will never cover arachnophobia. Just <laughs> let's be clear. Might have said that before. I will say it again. <laughs> So they arrive on a shore and they change into t-shirts. And then over those t-shirts, they put on reflective jumpsuits and hard hats to disguise themselves so that they look as though they are part of the demolition crew. So they make their way through the woods to the work site. Alejandro reminds them it's not about the individual, it's about the cause. They're here to make history. So they sneak onto the work site, chain themselves to the bulldozers, put on masks, open their jumpsuits to show their t-shirts that say, save Amazonia, and start filming everybody with their phones. Okay, so Shay and I watched this movie together. (laughs) And at this part, Shay goes, quote, I don't think anything has made me want to mind my business more. (laughs) (laughs) And she's right, because they are all up in what is not their business. And it does kind of turn to shit, because as they are locking themselves to the trees and the equipment so that they can't be grabbed or the demolition can't continue, Justine's lock won't work. 
we had a whole discussion about whether or not this was intentional because she keeps pleading with Kara, Alejandro's girlfriend, like, help me, help me, help me. I can't get my lock to lock. And she's concerned about, are they going to grab her? Is something going to happen? And Kara keeps ignoring her. Who knows if she's thinking Justine will figure it out. She's obviously occupied with her own shit. But sure enough, when the bulldozing team and the militia come on the scene, they grab Justine and threaten to shoot her for her vigilanteism. She's obviously terrified. Alejandro gets on the video because, again, remember that videos are being taken. And he challenges the militia to shoot her. There's mention of the UN, the United Nations, the militia responds to that, and they release her. Yeah, he says she's the daughter of somebody in the United Nations, and that's what gets them to back Mm -hmm. off. So that's what made us think it was intentional, because he used her, knowing that her positioning and her being in that victim position on a live stream would obviously look very, very bad, and that's what gets them to take off. So the group is sent home on a plane, and they celebrate their victory, but Justine is fucking pissed, which of course she is. She had a gun held to her head. She did not consent to this part of the plan. And yeah, it has to be intentional. We also see that Carlos is being paid off for something, Mm -hmm. which is going to inform a plot line later on. Absolutely. So everyone is cracking open their beers, taking a sip in celebration of their perceived victory. Jonah announces that their video is currently blowing up all over social media. Alejandro and Justine have a confrontation where she goes after him for putting her in this position, but he reminds her that he made a place for her. She wanted to be a part of this excursion. He made a place for her. He only did what she asked him to do. And then all of a sudden, the plane's engine blows out. The pilots lose control of the plane. We brace ourselves for a crash landing. The plane is coming apart as it moves through the atmosphere into the jungle and then it crashes, killing both pilots in the process. So Justine, Jonah, Alejandro, Daniel, Lars, Kara, Sam, and Amy get off the plane. Kara sees something scurrying in the woods, and as she approaches the noise, she is speared through the neck, killing her, and then the rest of them are eventually taken down by darts and tranquilized. Justine wakes to the sound of rushing water. She realizes that she's on a boat and men are paddling them on the river in canoes back to a campsite. They are all bound by their hands and greeted by people in red body paint and being taken into this tribal community. They are being touched all over with hands, kind of putting red body paint on them as a kind of initiation. They see bodies on spikes as they're led off the boat towards a camp. They see an elder woman in yellow step out to address them and all the noise stops. She studies each of them up close, speaks in a native tongue. The tribe breaks into action and they end up putting all of the survivors in a cage except Jonah. Yeah, and Jonah this whole movie has really been like a kind soul. And even though we realize this later with Alejandro maybe having ulterior motives with this activism trip, like I can see Jonah as being somebody really enchanted with this idea of activism like Justine was in the beginning. Like he seems like really purely motivated. But yeah, he's left out of the cage. We see him ushered by the tribe into more of like the center of the square. He's fed some kind of liquid. He takes the bowl, the liquids in. He says, thank you as he drinks it. We can see he's doing his best to be respectful or gracious. Like he, at this time, does not seem to feel threatened at all. Like he very much has faith in the humanity that he is around. But 
Shortly after he drinks this liquid, he is laid down and the tribal elder, the woman, scoops out his eyeball and eats it. And then she scoops out his other eye and eats it. And then she cuts out his tongue and eats it. The tribe is cheering. The people in the cage are crying. Jonah is obviously crying. He continues to be cut apart as he is living and then eventually dies as the rest of his body is passed around and prepared for eating. And I have to say, I said it when we watched this movie, I think Jonah's death is just the loss of innocence for the whole movie. He's like the only like purely good character it seems like we have. And maybe that's because he's killed off early. We don't get a chance to see him make decisions in survival mode, but he's dead and all hell breaks loose. So the survivors assess their situation in the cage. We have some violent shits. You had thoughts on these violent Okay, shits. let me talk about this. Okay, so this moment is baffling to me because, of course, Jonah, his remains are being cooked and eaten, and the survivors are in their cage kind of figuring out what to do, like Shay said, and all of a sudden, Amy starts feeling super sick. She throws up. She's still feeling sick, and then quickly makes it to one corner of the cage and has diarrhea. And the funniest thing to me is how violently everybody reacts to this. Everyone is like dry heaving. They're so offended by Amy's diarrhea in the corner. And I'm like, is that what you're worried about? <laughs> like, I, why would you be worried about that? She even made it to the corner and she got her pants down, which like, if you've ever shit your pants, you know, like that's not easy to do when the moment strikes. This moment was so baffling to me. It never comes up again. I don't know why this had to happen. So this conversation starts where they kind of start blaming each other. People start blaming Alejandro for bringing them there. And then this is where Alejandro reveals, listen, there's more bulldozers on the way. And he goes on to reveal that Carlos, their guide, who I think died in the crash, worked for a competing petrol company. And now they get to do the bulldozing because the competing petrol company is getting all this bad publicity because of what they did. So now... Carlos's company gets to do the petrol digging, and now Alejandro gets the notoriety for quote-unquote saving this population of folks that live in the Amazon. It's all this kind of scam. Alejandro says the good guys and the bad guys are always connected, but this was just a photo shoot. And at this point, the plane was probably rigged to kill Carlos because all of these things are always connected. But if that is the case, bulldozers will come and save them in the next few days. So at this point, Samantha is like, can't do it. She's upset. She tries to break out, tries to run away, but she's tranquilized. And it's really realizing that they are fully guarded. They're fully surrounded. They really can't get out of this situation. Alejandro also makes a crude comment about Jonah, how it's good he was killed first because he'll feed the tribe for a week. We're really seeing Alejandro's character turn sour in every possible sense, not only with his motivations, but his crude comments. He is just becoming not like this hot Josh Groban <laughs> version, <laughs> which I don't know. I don't know if a lot of people think Josh Groban is hot. Not is really. it just me? <laughs> okay, <laughs> but, uh, but he is becoming the bad guy very, very quickly. Samantha's tranquilized. We are being watched. The next morning, Justine sees a child watching her from outside of the cage. And she happens to be wearing that necklace that she had a conversation with her father about earlier in the film, which turns out to be a tiny flute, which makes sense because Justine used to be a flautist. So she tries to play her tiny flute necklace to appeal to this child. 
the child seems to like the music, but then one of the tribal folks appears and the child is distracted, runs away, and pulls Justine, Amy, and Samantha, the three women in the cage, out into the public square. The tribal elder instructs the ladies to take their underwear off and stand in the square. And this is where we have a very visceral scene, warning, where the tribal elder puts on, it looks like a hollowed out tusk over her fingers, where she then inserts it into Sam's vagina, then Amy's vagina, and then last, Justine's vagina. When the elder pulls the tusk out of Justine's vagina, it is bloody, showing that Justine's hymen was still intact. I believe that's what it's showing, which means Justine is a virgin. So they whisk Justine away into some kind of designated hut and return the other two women back to the cage. And we don't know what happens there. But meanwhile, the others try to create a distraction that allows Samantha, who apparently was really good at track, (laughs) to climb out of the cage and try to run down to the riverbank and get in a boat to look for help. Later, Justine is returned to the cage with the others. She has no memory of what happened to her. She never discloses what happened to her at all. Nobody ever really says, but she's just in her bra with white powder over her face and body. So it looks like some sort of ceremonial process took place. We're not really sure what it is, but she's back with no memory. They come back offering them food. Alejandro eats and Daniel rationalizes that they'll need the energy to escape. Amy is a vegan and says, I can't eat this because I don't know what it is, but starts to eat begrudgingly. And as she slurps her bowl, she sees that Samantha's tattoo is at the bottom of the bowl. Mm. They're eating Sam. They're eating Sam. So then Amy, in a very quick motion, breaks her bowl and commits suicide by slitting her own throat with the broken part of the bowl. Lars, who has had weed this entire time, The men decide to start stuffing the weed down her throat, and we're all like, what the fuck? Why? But essentially their plan is that Amy's body's gonna get taken, it's gonna get smoked, and then all of the tribe will get high, and that's going to lessen their defenses, and that can be an opportunity for them to escape. And it actually does end up working out that way. A lot of the members of the tribe are high, and this allows Justine and Daniel to sneak out. They all try to sneak out, but Alejandro ends up tranquilizing Lars to keep him behind so that there's somebody behind left for them to eat. So we're obviously seeing that Alejandro's not for the group here. He fucking sucks. (laughs) So Daniel and Justine escape into the woods. Alejandro tells Lars that, oh my gosh, you tried to escape, but they darted you while you were escaping and that Justine and Daniel are probably dead. And as Lars tries to escape, all descend upon him at once on the outside and eat him. Yeah, they have the munchies. They do have the munchies. And I was also like, take the fucking jumpsuits off at this point, because they're still in neon. They're still like running the fuck around. They are literally running around in neon jumpsuits. I'm so glad you brought that up. I have a lot of beef with that. Yeah, like take the jumpsuits off. Take them off. But they don't. Justine and Daniel instead find a canoe. They see smoke in the distance. So they're like, oh my God, we'll canoe to this smoke. That sounds amazing. But instead, Justine gets trapped in the river and almost drowns. And I'm guessing this is the scene in which the actress almost actually drowns Mm. and the footage is in the movie. But Daniel ends up saving her. They work their way back through the jungle to the crash site and they find the bodies of other passengers strung up on spikes. They try to find the GPS, but the battery is dead. They hear a chime from Kara's phone, but as they try to get the phone, they're tranquilized again. 
No way is that phone still ringing. Yeah, not at this point. Not at this point. But yeah, I mean, I don't know. You got to think about like 2009 battery energy when they like it wasn't going on the internet. You weren't using data. All it was doing was receiving texts and calls. Like some of those batteries would last for like three days. That's a good point. How many days do you think it was between the crash and returning to the crash site? Maybe two or three? Maybe two. Yeah. Okay, fine. Fine. We'll accept it. I'll accept it. They're tranquilized. And when Justine awakens, she is inside a hut. It appears there is some woman currently working on covering her nude body in white powder and paint. It seems like getting her ready for some kind of process or ceremony. She is starting to get like a needle ready. How do we understand what's going on here? I mean, I think especially because we got the context of FGM in the beginning of the movie and her legs are on yeah, a holster. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's right. They're tied to the little like stirrup things. Yes, they mm-hmm. look like stirrups. It Because we are given the context from the like virginity ceremony, for lack of a better term. Mm. Oh, so I wasn't paying attention during the classroom scene enough. <laughs> no, 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 <laughs> How no. could I make that mistake at this point in the game? No, no, no. But like, <laughs> I think literally it's that like Justine was the only virgin of the group. And mm-hmm. now that she's like undergone the proof of that, that they are trying to prepare her for some sort of ceremony to have her undergo some level of FGM. Mm -hmm. Okay, perfect sense. Meanwhile, Daniel, of course, was apprehended as well. And he is tied up to a pole outside and he is covered in like this green mold. It's like a weird piece. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then one of the other tribal members releases a colony of ants at Daniel's feet and they start climbing up his body, biting him, getting into his jumpsuit, biting his face, his neck and things like that. This was mentioned in the classroom scene. Like after the conversation about female genital mutilation, the professor goes, okay, and now the ants or something like that. (laughs) So like they never talk about it, but it does come up again, obviously, because Daniel is now enduring this kind of torture. I don't know what this is for, but it's happening. He's also beat up severely before the ants are released with some kind of club. It looks like his limbs are broken to prevent maybe any kind of escape or to heighten the torture. Meanwhile, Justine's body painting is complete and the tribal leader begins singing and grabs a little claw tool and positions herself between Justine's legs in the stirrups, looking like she's about to begin a procedure. And I wrote, interesting how this very invasive practice is being facilitated by all women, like the woman that's painting her, the woman that's doing the insertion or the mutilation is all women-based because obviously it's a very misogynist practice, but the fact that it's all being facilitated by women is also a very interesting discussion point. But they hear a noise and stop. The reason they stop is because a boy returns with the head of a bulldozer. A little boy from the village has chopped off the head of somebody who is leading the petrol bulldozing crew, and they all mobilize and head towards the action with spears and other weapons. Justine is able to convince that little boy who was really interested in her flute necklace to cut her loose and run away. Daniel is already dying, but she's able to take his phone and run, and the boy ends up mercy killing him. Alejandro begs for Justine to help him, but she fucking leaves him there because he's a piece of shit. (laughs) And the boy who's been helping her motions in what direction for her to run as other people begin running after her. Justine then finds the militia from before in active battle with the tribe. 
She sees like one of the main tribal men laying in the grass after being shot. We can see other people approaching. This battle is continuing to advance. And it seems like they're going to come after Justine because again, she's in paint. She looks like she's also a part of this tribe, but she holds up her hands and starts speaking in English and stating that she's American. And she takes out Kara's phone that she was able to grab from Daniel's pocket or Daniel's phone, one of the phones. And she pretends to start recording what is going on on the cell phone camera. Well, then she smashes the phone. Does she? I think so. She like pretends to record and then smashes the phone. I think she was just trying to give time for the tribe to retreat so that they wouldn't be killed anymore. Mm. And maybe she smashed the phone out of like mercy, like, look, I could have done this, but I didn't. Right. Help me. Right. And then one of the leaders of the militia orders for the others to take Justine away. And she is whisked away to safety. She's boarded on a chopper to fly home. And as she is taken out of the area, she sees many, many, many bodies sprawled everywhere across the ground and the militia actively burning the huts of the tribe. We also see Alejandro screaming for help, but he's tranquilized. And then we see later that Justine is in an interview or an interrogation, some level of something like that, where she says all the other students were killed in the crash and that the tribe saved her. They fed her and guided her out. She states that she never experienced any anger or hostility and she never felt afraid and that the bulldozers slaughtered them like cattle. Her dad comforts her and prides her in helping her work in saving the tribe. And then the investigator says, well, the Yahes, which was the name of the tribe, were reportedly cannibals, but Justine denies it. Later, she has a dream that Alejandro, in fact, made it home, but she sprouts sharp teeth and uses them to rip out his throat. But she wakes up from this nightmare, looks out her window and sees activists outside. It looks like either protesting for Alejandro to be returned home like they don't believe her story or just wearing shirts with Alejandro's face on them. Yeah, that like he's the smarter of this cause. Uh, like yes. he is this ultimate activist. And then the movie's over. But if you watch the credits long enough, there's like a closing credit scene where we just hear a voiceover of Justine picking up her phone and a woman on the other line claiming to be Alejandro's sister. Her mentioning that she saw surveillance photos of Alejandro still in the jungle and the sister telling Justine that they need to talk. So doing some kind of setup for a sequel. Which I don't know that it ever happens. No, it seems a little bit far-fetched, but that's it. All right, so going into some post-plot stuff. Obviously, there was a lot of controversy surrounding the movie, depictions, representation, all of these types of things that I mentioned in the beginning. So this first part comes from the article Eli Roth Faces Off with Tribal Rights Campaigners Over Cannibalism Film by Aaron Gell. And the article writes, The film was criticized by Survival International, which campaigns for indigenous peoples and indigenous peoples living in voluntary isolation as reinforcing colonialism and respectively neocolonialism, as well as their stigmas against indigenous peoples portraying them as savage. We were obviously disturbed by it. She, she being Rebecca Spooner, the Peru campaign director for Survival International, tells Business Insider, speaking from the group's London headquarters. Effectively, this seems to be depicting us. Like the idealistic young victims in the film, Spooner, age 30, and her colleagues have actively protested the Camisilla Project and other threats to Peru's indigenous groups. 
Last year, she traveled to the remote area near Cusco to view the effects of development firsthand. Unlike Sky Ferreira and other activists in the Green Inferno, she was not shot with blow darts, tortured, forced to endure female genital mutilation, disemboweled, impaled on a spike, or eaten alive. She did not have her eyes gouged out or pieces of her flesh sliced off. But the Green Inferno's depiction of activists like herself as naive and sanctimonious is not the problem, she says, nor is the gruesome punishment to which they're subjected. Depicting the uncontacted tribes as cannibals, however, poses a real-world risk. It's very dangerous, she says, noting that such depictions have often been used as an excuse to wipe them out. She points out that tales of native cannibals, frenzied, bone-through-the-nose savages boiling missionaries in a giant kettle, have been popular for hundreds of years now. These stories have created a racist view of uncontacted and isolated groups, she says, pointing out that such betrayals only make it easier for corporate interests and governments to push harmful policies unchecked by public opinion. I mean, yeah. I mean, if like if, if we're thinking about and specifically I'm thinking about the United States and the historic relationship between colonists and Native Americans, I mean, the first American folk tales focused on survival stories of people who were somehow like kidnapped or abused by Native Americans. And those stories were used and weaponized to facilitate or continue to harbor these negative relationships between colonists and Native Americans. And then, of course, we know how the history played out from there with fear and aggression and violence toward those indigenous tribes at the time. So yeah, I mean, historically, these kinds of stories have been used very negatively and destructively. Who's to say that those stories couldn't continue to have that kind of effect around the world in different areas? So this was expanded upon in the article, Why Eli Roth's Green Inferno was so controversial by Mara Bachman. And she writes, movies like The Green Inferno perpetuate and support colonialist ideologies where white people or those who align themselves with Western culture believe that they are doing communities that are tribal, third world, or non-Western a favor by saving them from their environments. This removes the autonomy from indigenous peoples who choose to live in voluntary isolation by demonizing them and painting their tribe as nothing but aggressive uneducated, savage, and forcefully disconnected from society, the indigenous peoples in the Green Inferno become an egregious and false depiction of what actually happens within these communities. So obviously Eli Roth had a response to all of this, and it's a lengthy response. So he writes, The idea that a fictional movie about a fictional tribe could somehow hurt indigenous people when gas companies are tearing these villages apart on a daily basis is simply absurd. These companies don't need an excuse. They have one, the natural resource in the ground. They can window dress things however they would like, but nobody will destroy a village because they don't like a character in a movie. They'll do it because they want to get rich by draining what's under the village. Mm. This fear that somehow a movie would give them the ammunition to destroy a tribe all sounds like misdirected anger and frustration that corporations are the ones controlling the fates of these uncontacted tribes by manipulating the governments into changing laws. It's like saying movies cause violence. The sad part is these companies don't need a movie. They're already doing it. I've been following this very closely, both in Peru and what's happening with the recent law changes in Brazil. It's tragic. My film, however, is about bandwagon activism or slacktivism. People jumping in on social media and retweeting causes that they actually know nothing about. Something these activists seem ready to do with my film. 
The whole idea of the kids saving the rainforest only to be eaten by the tribe they saved is a metaphor for how people are shamelessly consumed by their vanity and need for validation on social media. These kids in the movie care, but they care more about getting recognized for caring. If anything, The Green Inferno shows the beauty of Peru, where I took cameras farther than anyone has taken a film crew before to shoot a narrative feature, so audiences globally could feel for the jungle every time a tree gets ripped up. What these real-life activists do not know is that the film is actually on the side of the villagers. They can fear whatever they like about how these people are portrayed, but you know who loved the portrayal? The villagers I filmed. They thought it was hilarious, and they understood the difference between real life and the movies, even though we showed them cameras for the first time. Everyone knew it was pretend, and they also understood that tribes don't get displaced by gas companies because someone made them look scary in a movie. If this film or any film truly had that kind of power, I'd be able to make a movie and save the rainforest in 90 minutes. In short, if you want to save the uncontacted tribes in Peru, you're doing something that all of us believe in and many of us secretly wish we were a part of, and I applaud you. The people who seem to publicly care about how these people are portrayed are people who want to be portrayed as caring people. Hmm. If you don't like my film, that's fine, but everything in the film is based on real research of how natives live, dress, paint themselves, defend themselves, and the rituals reserved for intruders they see as enemies. Mm. You don't have to like it, and the story is all fictitious, but all the rituals came from my research on tribes around the world and how they treat intruders. But if you're really nervous about a movie fueling fire for people attacking villagers and taking their resources, then don't see the movie. If everyone stopped their ideas because they were worried about offending people or sparking discussion, then there would be no stories to tell. In short, take your cause seriously, but take my film for what it is, a movie. Damn. See, like... I get his point in the sense that he's like, this is fictitious. This isn't perpetuating a stereotype. And if it is perpetuating a stereotype, it's because you have a stereotype and you don't actually know what you're talking about. And that's why I respect him in that regard, because he did seem to do his research. He did seem to respond to the needs of the tribe that he met, that he filmed, all of those types of things. But then there's all of these concerns of, obviously, this tribe that he filmed didn't even have a concept of television before he even went there. So did they know what they were representing? Did they know what they were perpetuating? But everything that he did was rooted in real research of how communities act or how communities treat intruders. And that's something that I don't think that we outlined as specifically is part of the reason that all of these survivors were taken the way that they were was because they were dressed like the demolitioners. Oh, I never even thought about that. I did not realize that. They were dressed like the bulldozing crew because they snuck onto the work site in these jumpsuits to look like the bulldozing crew. And of course, they were going to treat these people who they thought were bulldozing their land like fucking enemies. Why wouldn't you? Wow. That makes a lot of sense. It does. Like, it's not like these people are savage and they're like, oh my God, there's people here. I'm going to eat them. It's like, no, these people were trying to tear apart our home. Mm -hmm. So let's fucking punish them. Right. That makes all the sense in the world. I think it's an interesting point about like Eli Roth talking about these companies don't need a movie to justify what they're doing. They're already doing it. But I do think that part of the reason companies have the footing for these kinds of actions, which obviously I agree that it's very much rooted in profit comes from narratives that exist about certain groups of people, like certain groups of people being more or less worthy of keeping their land than others. You know, companies can do this and do things like this. They can take land, drill for oil and things like that. But like, if there comes a time where they have to answer to those actions, it is helpful if they already have like a narrative in place. 
But something I do appreciate about this movie is all of the things you said about it. it seems like Eli Roth thought a lot about the real folks he was featuring in this movie trying to, I guess, incentivize them into participating in the movie by giving them what they wanted, like roofs or money or whatever they decided was fit. And it seems like he did at least try to give them some kind of education about what film and television was before he got their consent to participate. And who's to say that they didn't feel great about participating, you know, just because they don't know the nuances of film and television doesn't mean that they didn't watch Cannibal Holocaust and still get a kick out of it or recognize it for some kind of storytelling. No, and that's my point. And that's like the big question that I even wrote at the end of my research is how much of Green Inferno is irresponsible representation, but also when have we looked to horror movies specifically as an accurate true to life portrayal of a group of people and how much of it is the socially rooted outrage that Roth is criticizing? How many of the people enraged by this film have an informed perspective on native practices or all of these types of things? Because, I mean, we've talked about this in Cannibal Power Hour before, like, there is no group of people that have not participated in cannibalism, they just call it a different thing, Mm -hmm. right? It's always gotten kind of like pigeonholed or blamed on native or indigenous populations, but we always call it something else. I mean, like, again, look at Christianity, Catholicism, whatever. Every Sunday, the host body and blood of Christ, like uh-huh. that kind of thing. Like that is a form of it. So it's like, it's only savage when it's this pigmentation of people versus this pigmentation of people. And obviously there's something to be said about that, but it's also a culturally, historically known thing that people take part in this kind of practice, especially in this case, specifically what Eli Roth was saying of on intruders, on people that yeah. threaten your livelihood, on people that threaten your lives, on people that threaten your family's lives. I get that. And again, because the way this movie is positioned, it's just like, how do we know that these college slacktivists are different from the people that are bulldozing their land because they're dressed the same? Mm-hmm. So it's almost like saying that like, just because these native populations are dressed the same as whatever else we might be seeing in a movie, it's kind of like creating that same dichotomy of like, we assume that all indigenous, native, tribal peoples are involved in this kind of practice when that's not the case, but that's the assumption people are going to have. So, I mean, like, that's the thing. Do I think that Eli Roth is treading on very, very slim ice right now? Like, sure, yeah, absolutely. But do I think that he utilized, like, the outrage activism in the right direction because it got people talking about the Amazon and indigenous populations? And, like, yeah, of course. Like, I think that was his point. I think it is an ingenious that in the same movie that we're dealing with this conversation about how problematic is the representation, like the meat of the movie, not to make it like a cannibal part, <laughs> also deals with questions of like representation and activism. So I feel like in a way, like the conversation of the movie kind of informs itself and like exists really nicely as like a conversation piece. Because like we are, we're sitting here and we're wondering about is there or is there not problematic representation, but there's also the other side to that. This activism slash slacktivism side that if you're going to look at the movie and talk about it, you have to talk about both sides and what's really happening. So I think it works that he does that because, I mean, here we are having this conversation. And it seems like he put a lot of thought into, well, if we're going to have potentially this conversation, then you have to acknowledge this side of things too. But that's the Green Inferno. You survived. (laughs) I survived. Barely, I wish anybody luck who watches this movie. I think it was probably one of the most graphic and visceral movies we've ever watched together for this podcast. 
I mean, I really can't. Maybe I'm just drawing a blank because I'm like focused on this movie right now. But I always I really, think about mother when it comes to you. And that. I know, but that was like emotionally disruptive and devastating. <laughs> this was very visually, viscerally disruptive. Because if you think about it too, like there wasn't really anybody in this film I found myself rooting for heavily. You know, there, of course, we talked about Jonah and him being like a very innocent sort of figure, but we don't get to know him. And even our final girl, she has, I think, a very very controversial conclusion when she chooses to leave Alejandro, which is fine because he's a dick, but then lie to the public about what happened. You know, obviously we're looking at a moral conundrum here. Is that okay that she did that? Is that not okay that she did that? Like, I just find myself watching this film and, and not really finding anybody that I can connect with and root for fully, which is, I think, a little bit different too. Like, usually in the horror films we watch now that we're talking about it, it seems like oftentimes there is at least one person you're really, really rooting for. But in this case, I felt disconnected from people. But viscerally, it was really, really tough to get through this. And I think that's what Eli Roth is good for. I think he really is good at making unsympathetic characters that are trapped in a situation, but at the same time showing why it is their actions led them to the consequences they endure. And maybe it's a a saving grace that I couldn't find myself connecting heavily with these characters. Because imagine this same amount of gore. For Ricky and Better Watch Out. No, (laughs) please. Please, Ricky. I will never forget you. Oh my God, Ricky never deserved that kind of fate. But like Ricky over and over again, I don't think I could stand it. Like one Ricky per movie, maybe per year. (laughs) But yeah, so look, I'm okay with it. I don't need to connect with these people when I'm watching them get eaten. (laughs) It's okay. I can deal with a couple (laughs) antiheroes. But that's the conclusion of this year's (laughs) Cannibal Power Hour. It's already Uh, over. It is already over. And I'm ready for it to be over. I am ready. And like we said, next week, we're coming at you with a 2017 PG-13 film. Hopefully you enjoy it. I know we're going to enjoy it. And if you want to keep up with what we're doing, because we are, Shay and I were just talking, like we're on the verge of busy season. You might've noticed we're coming up on our 100th episode. We're coming up on our three-year anniversary in a couple months, but a couple months always moves fast. So if you want to keep up with us and things that we have planned for the future, please follow us on Instagram at the horrors podcast. And, or feel free to email us if you want to get in touch that way at the horrors podcast at gmail.com. And until next time, we're the horrors. Bye. Bye.